So, Balaam and his donkey. It's one of the classic Sunday school stories that gets told to children, often without proper context, and often without with a, a moralistic application that actually misses the point. For example, some of the uh, lessons that I've read that people have taken from this story are if we worship God rightly, we'll be able to bring about blessing. Or we should speak well of God's people and not bad. Or beware of the consequences of stubbornly insisting on your own will to fulfill your own desires. And even we should care for our pets and not beat them like Balaam did. Now all of those statements are wholly or partly true. But see how those applications are primarily about us and what we do. And they all assume that in this story we are supposed to put ourselves in Balaam's shoes to identify with him, either following his example or rejecting his example. But we're not to put our feet in Balaam's shoes. We're to identify with the Israelites, as I hope we've been seeing through all of these stories through the books of Moses. We are the Israelites who in this story, they're just the bystanders. They're down in the valley, possibly oblivious to these events that are happening uh, between Balaam and King Balak. Until, of course, they heard this account as it was written down for them. If we look at the three times that Balaam gets a mention in the New Testament, uh, we'll see a common thread that will enable us to see how we should understand Balaam. So firstly from 2 Peter 2, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Then Jude says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And then Jesus' own words from Revelation chapter 2. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's referring there to uh, what happens in Numbers 25, this failed attempt to curse Israel, They try a different strategy and they just simply sneak in and seduce the Israelites into idolatry and sexual immorality. But as you can see, all of these uh, three references to Balaam are likening Balaam to the false teachers that the church was contending with. So Balaam stands as a warning to be on our guard 
to anyone who might seek to lead us astray from our pure devotion to Christ. Who actually was Balaam? Well, we don't know a lot about him, except that he was the son of Beor. Wherever he's mentioned in the scriptures, he's called Balaam the son of Beor, which probably means he was of royal descent. Beor was the father of the Edomite kings. You can see that in uh, the genealogy in Genesis 36. Now, Peter called him a prophet, although technically that was something that he was forced into doing by God, who gave him words to speak. We should probably think of Balaam being more like a witch doctor or a shaman. He made his living by divination, which is why they brought money, fees for divination when they came to him. His job was to cast good or bad spells on people. People could come to him and for a fee he would bring a blessing on them or on someone that they liked or alternatively he would bring a curse on someone that they wanted to harm. And clearly he's had a good success rate. He's well known. And so the king of Moab engages his services to bring this curse upon Israel. Now back in Numbers 20, the king of Edom refused the Israelites' passage through his territory. He came out with a large army and forced them to go around and take the long route. So maybe Balak, the Moabite king, thought, well, if I employ this Edomite witch doctor who must have given his own people the power to repel this great horde of people, then maybe he can do the same for us here in Moab. In our modern secular culture, we tend to think about witchcraft as being the stuff of myths and something to laugh at and turn into entertainment. Uh, It's common in TV and movies uh, and it's called fantasy because we say, oh yes, all this magic stuff is just uh, fantasy. It's in the same realm as science fiction or superheroes. We dress up our children in witch costumes for Halloween and we think it's cute and just a bit of fun. And by doing so, we've trivialised the incredible power of fear that these men and women have held over people, not just in ancient times, but in many cultures today. The witch doctor or the shaman Uh, has incredible power over people. A witch doctor claims the ability to tap into the unseen spiritual realm and to manipulate the gods and the spiritual powers. We heard something about it, well, you heard something about it last week from Randall. Just in case you were a bit sceptical about what Randall said about the Dark Mofo Festival in Hobart, here's their statement. 
about what they're about. Now, of course, they themselves probably think, oh, yes, let's just make use of this uh, mythological idea and use it as a, a form of entertainment. They've used the term resurrection, which is a uniquely biblical idea, and they've applied it to the pagan celebrations of all of the, the cycles of the seasons, which is not about resurrection at all. And I imagine most of the people who went to this festival, even those who participated in it, just saw it as a bit of fun and probably wouldn't have claimed to believe in the spiritual dimension of it. It's just entertainment. Similarly, today, a lot of events are opened by an Aboriginal smoking ceremony. And many people think it's just a cultural ceremony to do with welcome to country. However, it's only been used in that way for the last couple of decades. It's actually a deeply spiritual ceremony. It's designed to drive away evil spirits. It's used at a person's death to aid their spirit to transition away from the material world. So it's actually just another form of witchcraft or shamanism, which our culture is now embracing as it's throwing off our Christian beliefs and values that have shaped it for so long. You may have heard the saying, nature abhors a vacuum, which is what physicists say. Well, it's true spiritually as well. Secular humanism claims to get rid of all religion and all superstition and create a world where there's a spiritual vacuum. But the reality is, if we tear out the worship of one God, it'll simply be replaced by another form of worship or spirituality. Human nature abhors a spiritual vacuum. We will worship something or someone. The Israelites were constantly facing two alternatives, but it wasn't between being non-religious and being religious. It was between worshipping the gods of this world or worshipping the true and living God. If they were to reject the Lord, it would by default mean taking on the alternative gods of Egypt from where they'd come or Canaan into which they were entering. So as they'd come out of Egypt and as they'd been disciplined by the Lord to leave behind the Egyptian gods who had been defeated there in the Exodus, now they're at the verge of entering the promised land of Canaan. They're faced with all the gods and all the spirituality of the people in this new land and the temptations are just the same as when they were in Egypt. So just as the Exodus story began with the Lord showing his sovereignty and his victory over the gods of Egypt, as we heard in that reading from Exodus, so now they reach the end of this journey and this story shows the Lord's sovereignty over the gods and powers of Canaan. This first part of the story which we we read It's the best known part because it has the talking donkey in it. 
There's much more to this, though, than a comical story, although it is supposed to be comical. It is supposed to be a a parody, because what it's doing is it's mocking this Moabite king who presumes to be more powerful than the Lord. And the clue to what's going on in this story is the fact that the donkey stops three times. That's not just for dramatic effect. What's happening here is the Lord is forcing Balaam to act out a role play, a skit, foretelling what's going to happen in the future. So in this skit, Balaam is actually acting out the part of King Balak. He's intent on destroying Israel, but he's blind to the fact that the Lord himself stands as this sword-bearing angel between Israel and their enemies to protect them, as he promised he would. And so the donkey is playing the part of Balaam. Balaam will be goaded three times by Balak to curse Israel, but each time he will only be able to see and speak what the Lord gives him. So as the donkey is to Balaam, so Balaam will be to Balak. Balak thinks he can use Balaam to achieve his goal, that he can pay this professional witch doctor to do whatever he wants to get this man like a donkey to obey him. When in fact, the Lord, not Balak, is in charge of Balaam's actions and words. He'll take Balak's evil intentions and he'll turn them upside down and use them for good. And as a result, Balak will be made a fool. As the man that he cursed Israel, that he... he hired to curse Israel, will end up speaking back to him with a curse. That's not quite where I was expecting. Anyway, this bizarre experiment, the experience, prepares Balaam for when he arrives before Balak. Um, There's a few scriptures there. Remember, Balaam said to Balak when he arrived, Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. So, the day after, and this is the scripture I'm supposed to be on, the day after Balaam arrives, they get ready to curse Israel. Now remember how the ancient people in the Near East viewed the gods. In their thinking, there were many gods, and each god was tied to their particular territory. So depending on where you lived, you'd have to appease the god of that area by bribing them with sacrifices and by promising allegiance, promising to serve them. And in return, you hoped... Firstly, that that God would not harm you, and hopefully that that God would protect you from the other gods and the other spirits and your enemies. 
Now because the gods lived in the heavens above the sky, the best place to offer these bribes was the tops of mountains where you were closest to the gods and there was more chance that they would notice you. Now you may be hearing that and thinking, well how is the Lord any different? How is Yahweh any different? He appeared to Moses on a mountain. He required sacrifices from the people. Doesn't that make him just like all the other gods who met people on mountains and required sacrifices? Well, there's a lot that makes the Lord different from these other gods. But what we see in the Old Testament is the Lord using the systems and the structures that people were familiar with, but through them he shows himself to be completely unlike the other gods. For example, in Genesis 1, it makes it clear that the Lord is not just one among the gods. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. And so he's the Lord of all who dwell in the earth and in the heavens. On all of the things that the nations would worship as gods, the sun, the moon, the stars... All the living creatures in the sky and the land and the sea and even human beings themselves, they're all simply parts of his creation designed not to be worshipped but to be a display of his glory so that all creatures will worship him. Secondly, the Lord became the God of Israel not because they chose him from among all the gods Not because they approached him or bribed him into being their God, but because he chose them out of all of the nations to be his people. And their offerings, their worship, didn't make him their God. Because it already set in place at the very beginning of the law, he'd laid the foundation by saying, I am the Lord your God, therefore... And everything followed. He became their God by grace before they had even lifted a finger to do anything for him. Thirdly, the Lord used mountains, mountains like Sinai, to, uh, to use for his people to encounter him. But he was known as a God who didn't stay up on the mountaintop. He didn't remain distant, inaccessible. He is the God who actually came down and he lived in a tent with his people, walking among them, guiding them, protecting them, ever present with them. And fourthly, the Lord bound himself to his people in a permanent way by swearing an oath so that the other gods would demand an oath of loyalty from the people, their servants, But the Lord swears to protect his people. From Psalm 106, 105, I haven't got my glasses on. When they were few in number of little accounts and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. 
In Balak and Balaam's view, though, this Yahweh, this Lord, is just one among the gods. And while he's brought Israel out of Egypt and he's protected them so far, they think they may be able to bribe him to abandon the people and to come over to their side. That's what a curse is. A curse is to be abandoned, to be forsaken by God. And it's vital that we understand this. A curse isn't an evil spell. It's not a spiritual power that someone can manipulate through rituals or incantations like we see in the movies. That's what witchcraft claims to do. To be under a curse is to have the blessing of God removed from you. To be taken to a place where there is no favour, with the face of God turned away from you. What's the blessing? The blessing is that the face of God is turned towards you in peace, to a place, a, a place where the God is with you, where he blesses you, where he puts his favour upon you. A curse is to have that removed. The Bible shows us that there's ultimately only one person able to pronounce and send a curse. God himself. No human being has the power to manipulate God's blessing. No one has the power to cause his blessing to be removed from a person whom he's determined to bless. He alone gives true blessing and so he alone is the one who can curse. So when Galatians 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham may come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith it's referring to the events of his suffering which began in the garden of Gethsemane when he was betrayed by Judas, deserted by his disciples, and he handed himself over to the soldiers. And it culminated in his death on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? See how the curse here is the curse of the law. In other words, it's the curse that can be pronounced by no one but God himself in his law. Because Christ became a curse for us, we are, through faith, taken out of cursing and brought back into blessing, where God is now present to us. His face turned towards us. He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.3 says, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we don't need to be fearful if we ever hear a suggestion from a Christian or anyone else that we may be under a curse or that we need to engage in spiritual warfare to set us free from the powers of evil or from what some have called generational curses. No human being, no 
devil, not even Satan himself, has the power to rob you of the blessing of God that has come to you in Jesus Christ. So to bring a curse on Israel, Balaam must somehow remove the Lord's blessing so that they'll be left there out in the open with no protection and able then to be defeated by the Moabites. That's why he sets up the altars in a certain way. Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I've arranged the seven altars and I've offered on each altar a bull and a ram. He thinks the bribe is working. God has come. Ah, God's noticed us up on the mountain with the smoke and the sacrifices and maybe he's going to do what we want. But notice the animals that Balaam uses, bulls and rams. These are animals that were approved in the law as acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. He's not offering pigs or snakes, but animals that he thinks that the Lord will be pleased with. And why seven altars? Well, the number seven was considered in many ancient cultures to be a powerful number, symbolising divine perfection. Balaam probably thought superstitiously that the Lord would be extra impressed with seven altars, not just one. But there could be something else going on here that even Balaam was unaware of. When we read the story in Genesis 12 to 35 of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, there's a detail that we might easily miss. These three men, between them, over their lifetimes, built seven altars. The first was at the very beginning, where the Lord first gave Abraham the promise of the land, in Genesis 12. Abraham built four altars, and the fourth altar was where he offered his son Isaac, before the Lord stepped in and provided a ram as a substitute. Isaac built one altar, and then Jacob built two. The final one at Bethel, good name Bethel, isn't it? Where the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and that's where he changed his name to Israel. So seven altars are dotted across the span of this account of the Lord making all of his foundational promises that he would then keep and fulfill in Israel. Now, as I said, Balaam was probably ignorant of this story. He thought he was using a magical number to bribe a god. But unwittingly, what he meant for the destruction of Israel was simply a confirmation of the blessing. Three times on three mountains, he offered sacrifices 
that for the Israelites were an affirmation of the Lord's grace and mercy towards them. They're the sacrifices that they would see regularly offered in the tabernacle and especially on the Day of Atonement. And by offering them on seven altars on each of the mountains, he was simply affirming and confirming the Lord's covenant promises given through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and through them to Israel, those promises of blessing. He couldn't bribe the Lord with these sacrifices because these sacrifices were already gifts that God had given to his own people. So to use the words of Joseph, that which Balaam meant for evil, God meant for good. 1,500 years later, there were some other evil men who made a sacrifice, this time a human sacrifice, on another mountain. And they thought that as they were doing this, they would bring an end to a revolution that had started This man they were killing claimed to be the Lord's prophet, claimed to be the Lord's anointed one. But with all their evil intentions, they were unwittingly simply doing God's will. Paul declared on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus, uh, sorry Peter, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And a little bit later, the Christians prayed, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This wasn't God managing somehow to bring some good out of a tragic incident. The worst sin ever committed by human beings in all of history as they crucified the Son of God was at the same time the predetermined means decided by the Father long before the world was created through which he would actually save these sinners who were crucifying his Son. So just when humanity thinks it's doing its worst, thinking that our raging against God is going to be the most effective in nullifying his purposes, he, so to speak, pulls out the trump card and reveals that we've just been going along with his plan from the very beginning. And that's what's happening with Balaam and Balak. That's why the dilemma of what the Lord was saying to Balaam early in the story isn't actually a dilemma. Remember, first he told Balaam not to go. Then he told them to go. Then he was angry with him because he went. Then Balaam repented and said he would turn back and he's told to keep going. The Lord's not constantly changing his mind. What we see here is he's simply just engineering what's happening to make sure it happens exactly as he'd already planned it. So that it's crystal clear that in this story, the people involved are entirely responsible, morally responsible for their evil actions, but at the same time, he's sovereignly working out 
his plan through everything they do. As we saw, he'd already set out the scripts with the donkey incident. He showed he'd already determined how this whole thing was going to play out. So Balaam gives three oracles, each from the top of three mountains. Let's see how they are simply affirming the Abrahamic covenant. We only have time to look at a few verses from each one. The first oracle is in chapter 23, verses 7 to 10. And within that, Balaam, against his own will possibly, is only saying what the Lord is saying, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel or the quarter of Israel? Can't even be numbered. The heart of the Abrahamic covenant was that God would bless him and that his descendants would become a great multitude like the dust of the earth. The second oracle is in 23 verses 18 to 24. And in that we see a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. This is the Lord's commitment to his promise. If he himself will not take back what he's said, then no human being can change his mind on it. Now this second oracle also has a reference to a king. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. This is a bit odd because they won't have a king, a human king, for another 400 years. So who is this king who is shouting from their midst? What's the Lord himself standing there as the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand? The third oracle is in Numbers 24. And it finishes... He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Now here he quotes directly from the Lord's own words to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Finally, at the end of his third oracle, he can only repeat what the Lord has already said in a concrete way, way back in Genesis chapter 12. And note the line above that, which is also a direct quote from Genesis. It's a direct quote from Jacob's blessing on his son Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion 
and as a lioness who dares rouse him. That's the verse from which we get the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5.5, to refer to Jesus. From the tribe of Judah came the royal house of David, and from the house of David came the Messiah Jesus, who's the one who now is among us, who shouts from among his people the victory that he's won by defeating sin and death and the devil and nullifying the curse. So at the end of this story, we see this pagan, idolatrous witch doctor who was sent to curse Israel being overruled by the sovereign Lord so that he not only confirms the Abrahamic promise over Israel, but he also prophesies the coming of Christ. Christ who came to deal with the curse of the law, the curse of sin and death by his death and resurrection has brought us into that security of this of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ where is it this is true of us blessed are those who bless you cursed are those who curse you this is true of us the Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. He has blessed. No one can revoke that blessing that we have in Christ.